my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Eva Galperin has been referred to as a hacker hero. She is the director of cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and technical advisor for the Freedom of the Press Foundation. She is the co-founder of Stop Stalkerware. So Eva, how did you become interested in privacy, in free speech, in this entire world? 
I am an immigrant who came to the United States as a child with my family from the Soviet Union. And so all of, of my most sort of foundational memories are built around this notion that we left a place with no civil liberties to come to a place that had more of them, and that the protection of those liberties was very important. Life in the Soviet Union was always framed as you know this place where you had no privacy and where you had no free speech, and uh, that these were extremely important values that uh, that we needed to protect. And so I guess I, uh, I I really internalized that growing up. And then your interest in technology really started very early on. Tell us about that. We left the Soviet Union and then we landed in, uh, in Silicon Valley in the 80s. My mom was a geneticist and so she came to you know, San Francisco and worked in biotech. And uh, my dad was an engineer, and so he came to Silicon Valley and worked at a series of tech companies. And as a result, there was always tech around the house. And I was, I was online at a time when most children were not, when there was an internet, but there was no web. And it was assumed that if you were able to speak to other people over this internet, that you were at least in college and probably using like your first college account. And in my case, uh, that is not what I was doing. Uh, I was actually using a 2400 baud modem and one of those little VT100 green screens that you used to see in libraries to uh, place a phone call to my dad's desktop machine at Sun Microsystems in order to uh, contact the rest of the internet. And so my first experiences online all required me to, to sort of have a strong understanding of how the internet worked. And that brought me you know, a lot of the fundamentals that, that helped me land my first jobs. But how did you sit down in front of that first computer? So one of my friends had found some sort of like chat group on Prodigy relating to, you know, our favorite you know, fantasy and science fiction series. And I came to my father and I said, Daddy, Daddy, can I get Prodigy so that I can, you know, sit around talking about dragons? And uh, my father said, uh, no, daughter, Prodigy sucks. And he uh, got me a, a shell account on his computer and showed me how to use newsgroups and Usenet. So take us to your first job. I guess my first computer job was uh, during my freshman year in college at UCSC. I worked for a company in Sunnyvale doing uh, sort of a desktop administration of Windows machines and also a bunch of you know, Unix administration on a, a lot of, uh, of Solaris machines and some network administration. And the reason that I was able to do this was because I had seen all of these things before. And I had spent a bunch of time, you know, building my own computers and I already understood how networks worked. And so all I had to do was just sort of expand that knowledge out into, you know, how, how do you look after many machines at once instead of just the one machine that you have in your house? And that turned out to be such a useful skill that eventually I was like, wait a minute, what am I going to college for again? And I dropped out. Some people have called you their hacker hero. How did you go from where you were then to becoming the cyber hacking superstar that you are today? 
Well, I don't want to leave people with the impression that it is uh, just a nonstop rise to power where, you know, <laughs> I as a as a wunderkind mastered the internet. No, none of that is true. I, I dropped out of school in order to go work a steady tech job. And uh, my parents were appalled. And they were like, but you need to go to college. And so I told them, oh, don't worry. When this bubble bursts, I will go back to school. And I was lying. But the bubble did burst. <laughs> because I, I have lived in Silicon Valley for a very long time. And I have seen many bubbles come and go. So the bubble did burst. And no one I knew had a job. Uh, in in the early 2000s. And certainly I did not have a job. And I turned around and I went back to school. I got a degree in international relations and political science. I spent two years studying Chinese. And my intention was uh, to go to law school next and become a lawyer. I'm like, well, you know, this computer stuff really isn't working out. And I was, uh, I was just about to go to, to law school and gotten into law school. And uh, the guy that I was, uh, I was dating at the time said, you know, I, I don't want to leave the Bay Area. The law schools that you got into are far away. So I've just started a job at this place called Twitter. And I think it might go somewhere. So can you just like give me a year? <laughs> just go get a job somewhere and give me a year while we work all of this stuff out. And uh, he went to go work for Twitter, and I went to go work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And my job was uh, you know, extremely high-powered and uh, technical. Uh, it was my job to answer the phone. <laughs> I, I answered the phone at EFF in 2007, which was shortly after the Civil Liberties Organization had filed a lawsuit against AT&T for its part in the NSA's warrantless wiretapping program that had been going on since 2003. This was a Bush-era program. Uh, and that meant that we had a lot of people contacting us who were concerned about uh, government surveillance. And some of those people had really interesting cases. And some of those people were in need of a therapist. And it was my job to tell the difference between these two kinds of people and to very patiently <laughs> uh, sort of corral both of them. And that was something that I, that I did for several years. And it really gave me a, a strong background in all of EFF's different issues. I, I learned about copyright. I got to apply my international relations skills. I, I got to apply my, uh, my language skills and also my technical skills when it came to you know, sort of understanding how this kind of surveillance worked. This was also the, um, the height of the MPAA and the RIAA's efforts to sue mostly college students for pirating um, movies and uh, and music. And so I was also hearing from a lot of people who were uh, only a couple years younger than I was who had these, you know, terrifying letters that were coming from the RIA and the MPAA saying, you know, give us thousands of dollars or we will sue you into oblivion because you downloaded a movie once or you downloaded an album. And so I spent some time working on that as well. There was actually a really interesting thing that happened while I was doing this job, which was uh, there was a, a law firm that came up with this interesting scam where they would upload files to the internet purporting to be uh, various types of porn. And then they would 
see who downloaded it. And then they would send threatening letters to that person saying, we know you downloaded this porn. And unless you want us to sue you, a lawsuit in which the title of this porn, allowing people to, to know embarrassing things about your taste in pornography, unless you want us uh, to, to file this lawsuit, please give us $2,000. And they sent out thousands and thousands of these letters. It was a tremendous scam. So those were my first experiences dealing with people who were being uh, unfairly surveilled, unfairly targeted, with vulnerable populations, with people who were really scared and feeling powerless and were having their worst day and uh, would then reach out to me. Were you comfortable or how did you go about taking that role of answering phones into really analyzing what was coming through in these massive early issues with the internet? Well, part of it was, was just the act of repetition. Once you've seen, you know, several hundred different examples of the same issue, you get really good at triaging it very fast. And when you have accurately triaged things for, you know, for your legal team or for your activism team, you know, consistently for the better part of, you know, a year or two or three, then your peers start to trust your judgment. And you, you know, kind of build up that kind of rapport. Uh, but really, it just came from doing it over and over and over again until I, I got very good at it. The work of answering the phones at the Electronic Frontier Foundation had, uh, prior to me, been a job that famously burned people out. Uh, it was very rare for somebody to last more than a year doing that. Why weren't you burned out by that job? I think I just had a, you know, tech startup kids capacity for burnout. Uh, <laughs> I had a very different idea about what qualified as burnout. And I'm not going to tell you that that was healthy. It absolutely was not. I think the one of the things that's really changed at EFF, and in fact, in just in workplaces in general, in the many years that have gone by since I, since I did that job, is that we have a lot more understanding of the psychological impacts of doing this kind of work and an understanding that you can't expect people to deal with, uh, with other people's trauma 24-7 every single day. And now, a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing. But I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. Old 
these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry she would probably have sex with one of her clients hide your money in your old rich man because <laughs> she is on the prowl listen to queen of the con season five the athlete whisperer on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Eva, there was an incident at your work that led you to really focus on cyber stalking. I spent many years focused on the privacy and security needs of activists and journalists, largely in North Africa and the Middle East. A lot of this was happening during the Arab Spring and sort of the years after the Arab Spring. But in late 2017, early 2018, it became known that my primary collaborator on all of the security research that I was doing was a serial rapist. He had been uh, running around raping women for decades. And in January, I think, of, uh, of 2018, an interview came out with one of his survivors. And uh, she was just terrified. She was really, really scared. And everybody else 
in that article was really scared. And they were scared of him, not just because he had been you know, raping women for several decades, but also because uh, he was a hacker and they were afraid that he was going to compromise his their devices. So they all had their, you know, their microphones covered and they all had their cameras covered and they were, they were terrified. And I was so mad. (laughs) I got so mad and I didn't want anybody to ever feel that way again. And as a result, I, I started a project that was aimed at uh, the sort of commercial spyware that these kinds of abusers use in order to stalk their victims. And I co-founded an organization called the Coalition Against Stalkerware, and we've been uh, working on this issue ever since. Can you give an example to our listeners as to how it all works and what it means to be cyber-stalked? Well, uh, there are many different forms of uh, electronic surveillance or stalking, but the particular thing that I chose to focus on, because it's so invasive and also very easy to do, uh, is stalkerware. So there is commercially available Uh, software that uh, anyone can find or purchase that if they have uh, physical access to your device uh, and they have like your username and password, which is uh, an extremely common combination of things when you're dealing with somebody who is uh, who is abusing you. What the abuser does is they simply uh, grab the other person's phone when they're not looking, download the stalkerware onto their phone, and then the phone covertly exfiltrates data from the phone, usually to a website, which is run by the company that makes the stalkerware. And then the abuser pays a monthly fee to the stalkerware company in order to get that, uh, get access to that data through a portal. You have been vocal about trying to come after the executives from the stalkerware companies, because presumably this is one of the worst possible ways to to be making money in this world. How, how is, have you been successful at that? I have had some success uh, when it comes to uh, going after the stalkerware companies themselves. I am very careful about how, to, how I do this because I am myself a security researcher. And so I want to be really careful not to use any of the tools that are used to sort of persecute security researchers for doing our thing, even against bad people. Uh, And I want to make sure that I don't create any bad precedent that can then be used to stop the kind of work that I do. But in addition to the fact that stalkerware is very bad, it is often very poorly made. (laughs) It's often really insecure. So not only is your data available to your stalker, but sometimes uh, these portals leave data open for anybody to see. And I have managed to convince the FTC to take action against two such companies that ended up behaving in this way. You've gone up against some really powerful companies and powerful people. Have you ever felt afraid? Have you faced any backlash? Before I, I worked on domestic abuse, I was working on, I, I was working to support people who were being stalked by uh, authoritarian governments. And if you think an abusive partner is, uh, is a jerk, wait until you are, say, going up against the Syrian government in 2012. It's a very different kind of situation. And I have been targeted before by a government that was angry about my activism. Uh, the Vietnamese government actually sent me malware. But 
I'm not scared because this sort of stuff is old hat to me. I have been doing it for a very long time, and it's just very difficult to frighten me at this point, which means that I don't get bullied a lot. What is your relationship to personal safety like in your own everyday life, not online? Well, a lot of people are are surprised. They say, well, you know, I can find you online. I, you know, you're using your real name. There are pictures of you. I can see them. You know, I, I know what city you live in and all that sort of thing. You use social media. I see that you have like an Instagram account and a Facebook account and whatever. And they say, well, how dare you? You know, are, you're a privacy and security activist. How can you be, how can you be doing this? Uh, and the answer is that privacy and security are not about living on a mountaintop, uh, throwing all of your devices into the ocean, which is presumably located near this mountaintop. It is about having control over your data and making decisions about who you do and do not share it with. And so my life is locked down, but it's not so locked down that I can't move. I think one of the most important things that we really lose sight of when we talk about privacy and security online is that you need some wiggle room. You can't just turn around and leave the internet. <laughs> and that's advice that, that people give to survivors of domestic abuse all the time. They're like, you're being harassed, you're being, you know, you're being followed, you're being stalked, just, just don't use the internet. Just, you know, shut down all of your social media accounts and never talk to your friends again. And that's just more alienating. What about when you're just in your everyday life? Do you find that you're less trusting of people given your work? I'm not sure what I would use as a benchmark. <laughs> I was never a particularly trusting person. What is your personal life like when letting a new relationship into your life? Are you more cautious than the average person? I don't know. I don't have an average person around to compare myself with. I limit the kind of risks that I take. But I also, you know, I live in reality where you have to be able to communicate with other people and, and have them be able to find you on occasion. I don't live like a secret agent. <laughs> okay. So when you met your partner, did you meet online or no? No. So you've never dated online? No, no, I still meet people the old-fashioned way where you in meet space. I do not have any good advice for trying to date online in the year of our Lord 2022. <laughs> <laughs> that seems terrifying. <laughs> what is your relationship like with your parents today? Really nice, actually. I mean, I, I did in my mid-20s apologize to my parents for that, the entire time I was a teenager. And now we get along just fine. <laughs> but I was, I was an exceptionally difficult teenager. How would you define sort of the biggest mistakes that most people are making when it comes to exposing their own online world to potential stalkers or bad people? Well, I think that the first thing people really need to think about is uh, what we call threat modeling. So you need to sit down and you need to think about what you want to protect and who you want to protect it from. Because trying to protect everything from everybody all at once is a good way to go insane. It's just not practical. The other thing to keep in mind is that the people that you trust today are not necessarily going to be the same people that you trust tomorrow. Abusers, for example, do not show up 
with a great big sign across their forehead saying, hello, I'm an abuser. They show up looking like the best thing that's ever happened to you. And I think that it's really important for people to understand the dynamics of abuse, but also to understand how to lock someone out of their lives, how to sort of take back all of the permissions that they have given, and how to do it decisively and quickly. And to, to sort of practice these skills in advance, because generally when you need to lock somebody out of your life, you are already in a, in a heightened state of, uh, of panic. And that's not when you want to be practicing tricky new skills. Now, a lot of people feel like if a partner is not allowing you to hold their phone and use their phone and know their password, that they're hiding something. That's sort of the converse to, you know, being protective. What do you think about, I mean, does your partner have access to your phone? Oh, hell no. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Will they ever? No. Not their phone. So in 20 years, he would never be able to just use your phone to look up something on on the internet. Is his phone broken? Did something happen to his fingers? (laughs) What if you're going on a road trip and he forgot his phone? We would turn around and go get it. Okay, so there is no circumstance under which he can use your phone. I mean, in some sort of situation where like terrorists are going to destroy the world unless I hand him my phone, sure. But uh, for the most part, you know, no, I have my own devices. I have my own privacy. And there's no reason I would ever have to give access to that stuff to another person. If I want someone to have access to one of my devices, I will set up a separate account for them that they can log into in order to get to that device. And the same thing happens with, you know, all of the electronics around the house. You want access, you can have an account. And when it's time for you to go, I can change the password on that account. I can lock that account out. I can delete that account. But you don't get mine. And now a quick break. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. 
Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 2020, you gave a TED Talk that you know has over 3 million views how did that change the trajectory of your career? I was actually kind of surprised. <laughs> I was I was approached by Ted to give a talk and they sort of shrugged when I asked them what I should talk about. Like they didn't care. They just wanted me to get up on stage and say stuff. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, fine. I'll just talk about this this thing that I'm currently working on. And I didn't expect for it to strike such a nerve. But I think it was really just the the combination of the uh, the technical problem that I was working on combined with the kind of human interest story of all of these people who are being targeted combined with the human interest story of I got so mad I decided to destroy an industry. What are you working on today? Well, right now I I have just spent a bunch of time working on physical trackers, uh, so like tiles and air tags. 
I am not destroying the industry. I'm trying to get the industry to agree on a standard that they will then publish so that the people who make uh, phones and other devices can build sort of tracker detection directly into those devices that will work all the time in the background. So you don't have to like specifically download an app for every single different type of tracker and then run a scan for every single kind of tracker because that is a hellscape. Uh, and that's sort of where we are now. The other thing that I'm working on right now is uh, privacy and safety for people who are seeking abortions and who are doing abortion support. That's definitely been my, my last couple of months of work and trying to come up with, uh, with best practices for people and also really bringing these issues up to people who are working in tech, who are making products and who are making platforms and get them to think about how they are going to protect users who are traveling to abortion clinics or searching for information about abortions or who are simply being prosecuted for their pregnancy outcome, whether it was an abortion or a miscarriage. And a lot of the danger to people in these populations isn't widespread now, but I have spent a lot of time working in authoritarian countries and watching laws get passed very quickly and watching the, the entire threat landscape change very quickly. And when you build a platform or you build a tool, it's really hard to turn that ship around fast. So I want them to start turning it around now before it becomes necessary. You've said that you were a difficult teenager. If Eva was a teenager today, her parents would have Life360 and be tracking her every move, how fast the vehicles she's driving and are going. What are your thoughts on all of these parental tracking devices that are now sort of the norm? Hilariously, my parents wouldn't. My parents gave me a tremendous amount of freedom, partially out of, uh, out of respect for my need to go figure out who I was and what I was doing. And uh, that caused them a great deal of anxiety. But they did it. And part of that, I think, is because kids now grow up in a much more heavily surveilled environment than I did. I, I grew up during an era of latchkey kids where it was totally normal for you know, kids to come home from school, let themselves into the house, microwave up some ramen, possibly feed their younger sibling. And then somewhere around eight or nine, a very tired parent comes home. That's not what parenting is like now. It's very different. So I think that, that that sort of comparison is just sort of unfair. As for parenting apps, I think that parents should give their, their kids some room to grow and some slack. But at the same time, if you are going to watch your kids and what they're doing online and what they're doing on their various devices, there are, are two bits of advice that I have. The first is don't lie to them. Don't lie to them. Don't fool them. Make sure that they understand, you know, exactly. Here are the tools that I am using. Here is the information that they get. And the second is to talk to your kids about being responsible online and how to look out for threats themselves and make sure that they're comfortable coming to you with problems. Like, do some parenting. I think that there is a, there is a sort of authoritarian bent in parenting right now. This kind of idea that you have to run your house like a police state. And, uh, and you don't, if you think you got to fool your kids, there are other solutions, which, uh, which seem like they would probably be less harmful in the long run. Sam, do you want to go to the speed round? Yeah. 
What book are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I am reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, which is about combining notions about uh, science and environmentalism with the author's experience as a Native American growing up in the United States. What is your morning routine? I wake up in the morning and I have first coffee. <laughs> no mental effort happens before first coffee. <laughs> and then I just sort of stagger until I manage second coffee. <laughs> I'm not a very good morning person. Who leaves you starstruck? Probably the last time that I felt that way was uh, EFF gave a Pioneer Award to William Gibson. And I stood in the same room as the guy who wrote all of the science fiction that really influenced a whole lot of my early childhood. And I was extraordinarily impressed. But mostly I was impressed not only that he wrote all of these books that influenced me very much at an early age, but that he is writing books now that I feel are very much at the top of his game. Because what he does with science fiction is uh, what, what any good writer does, which is that people think you're describing the future, but all you're really doing is describing the present with a really discerning eye. And so he's an amazing observer of the present. You're clearly very fearless. What is your greatest fear? I've tackled so many of my fears by just sort of throwing myself into them. There are people who are afraid of public speaking. So I, I took up competitive public speaking in college. There are people who are afraid of heights. I am a circus aerialist. I do tricks 30 feet up in the air upside down and spinning until I am not afraid of heights anymore. But there are definitely still, still things that I am afraid of. And I think that more than anything, what I dread is, is losing autonomy. I have a tremendous amount of autonomy in my day-to-day -day life, more than I ever thought that it was possible for a person to have. And losing that would be, I think, a really big blow. You know, years ago, I did a book series called The Expert's Guides, right, to different things. And I would always try to find the top expert in every field. And certainly, I would have approached Eva for, you know, a, a how to protect yourself online chapter. But I admire anyone who gets to the top of the field like she has. I completely agree. And I think with Eva, the thing that's even more interesting is she is a woman who has really taken truth to power in a completely male-dominated arena, right? All of those things together, like, that's really hard. And in the national security arena, which, like, in and of itself is an intimidating place to be. I thought the most surprising thing was how little fear she has about her own safety and how little concern she has for that. It really surprised me. I felt like she was going to at least be a little guarded about that or, or have some just practical concern, but it almost makes you feel more powerful, the fact that she's not afraid at all. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para and our male perspective, Lou Burns. <laughs>